Well, good morning. morning. It's great to be with you. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 4 to 25 in our time together this morning. Um, Yeah, I appreciate your prayers. I've been working on this PhD for 10 years, so it's nice to finally be done. It's been been a long haul, so praise the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer again before we look into his word. Father, it is a great joy to be with your people. It's a great joy to sing praises to you. Lord, help the cross never to become old in our lives. Um, Just something we believe, but may it invigor us, enlighten us, enliven us as we move into this world and share the good news of Jesus Christ with others And believe it in the way we live our lives. So Father, guide us now as we look at this text. We pray that you'll clear our minds of preoccupations and thoughts and other things. And allow us just to focus afresh upon you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, I was thinking, at one level we have an awful lot to worry about in this world, don't we? If you want to worry, there's a lot to worry about. You know, look at what happens national and international catastrophes, whether it's earthquakes and tsunamis and up, you know, outbreaks of war in Libya. And, 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 you know, sometimes, frankly, as a parent, do you ever worry about the next generation? Like, where are my kids going to end up or what's going to happen? And, I mean, it would be so easy to focus like that if you're like me. I If I shift into neutral, man, I can worry real quick. At one level, we we shouldn't worry, but we should be in an appropriate way concerned, right? Concerned about what's going on around us and ask, what can we do? Uh, Should we be concerned about our country and all? Yeah, yes, all, all, all very good things. Should we do appropriate things as citizens? Yes, fair enough. But what is it as we think about the next generation? What is it that should concern us most? Um, And when you come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses' passion in this text is that we would impact the next generation with true godliness. He's going to tell us how to do that. and, And the steps are like really important that you don't reverse them because you can be very easily misunderstood if you do. And he gives us this several-tiered way of, of impacting the next generation. You say, well, I, I, I'm single. There's still people you can impact. I, I'm a teenager. You won't always be a teenager. You see? So, so we all are in the process of impacting somebody else, whether it's our immediate family members or, or those in the body of Christ that we come in contact with. So what does he tell us to do? How do we approach this? Notice what he says. I want to suggest to you three basic steps. The first thing that Moses tells us is that we need to love God supremely. Look at, um, look at chapter 6 here, verse 4 and 5. Very, very popular within Jewish tradition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. How many gods are there really in this world, folks? 
There's one, and Moses is saying, guess what? He is ours. And that becomes the thing that generates us more than anything else. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, you know what? There's only one God, and you have him. Better, he has you. And this text starts out by saying, look, there's one. There's not multiple. There's one, and he's ours. So what I want you to do is I want you to love him with all of your heart, your soul, your might, everything within you. The, um, the worst thing I can do for my kids is to just give them religion. Isn't that true? You know what my kids need to see more than anything else in my life? That God is real. And at the very core of my soul, I love God. I blow it, make mistakes, I sin. We all do, we all do. That's not the point. But at the very core, there's this love for God. And to love God means that I love him above everything else. Let me just point out two things. That obviously would include every other desire or what we might call idol in our lives. I was thinking about this. Think about some of the um, isms in our lives. There's a relativism, isn't there? Which means it really doesn't matter. What you want to do, you do what I do, I do. And if it works for you, it works for you, it works for me, it works for me. So who cares? Whatever. It's easy sometimes for Christians to buy into that. But you know the one I struggle with more? Individualism. You know? Where everything kind of revolves around me and I, I can cut my own way and, and I can do it and it's me, me, me. And you know what? You only go around once in life and so you've got to do what's best for you. Now, that may sell product, but it doesn't work God's side of the street at all, does it? You see? There's a whole bunch of isms. How about materialism? American problem? A little? <laughs> Huge, isn't it? And don't we find ourselves getting caught up in a world that's all about getting the next gadget? Having the next thing. That's old, I need to replace it. And it's so easy to get lost in things and that life is about things. One day, all these isms will become wasms. Isn't that true? When we stand before Christ, individualism will matter nothing. Materialism will mean nothing. Victimism will mean nothing. Relativism, it's all gone because they're all charades. They're not reality. And God calls us in this passage, look, live for what is real. Live for what carries on for all eternity. It's me. So love me above every other desire. Whatever that is in your life, folks. We've all got our stuff, don't we? Got the things that we kind of gravitate to. The other thing I find to be interesting within Deuteronomy, it kind of sets me back a little bit, I have to tell you. It also means I love God above every other person. You know, if you flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 13, I made a calculated mistake, so I'm hoping I can read this. But um, I have this mic on. It's all taped together, so I can't take my glasses off or else it'll mess up the mic. And I brought a little print Bible. That's not a good thing. And my eyes aren't exactly everything they should be. So I'll try to read this, but if, uh, yeah, I got it, I think. So if I'm going like this, yeah, that's the only way to do it. So relax, we'll be okay. 
See, I bring big print for the actual text, but I didn't, I didn't for this other one here. So. But notice what Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, it's a really interesting passage. It's talking about what do you do if a prophet tries to lead you astray? What's it say, incidentally? What do you do to that prophet? You remember in the Old Testament? Right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, he's done, kind of a deal. What do you do if there's, a, there's a, a city that's tried to lead the nation astray? Yeah. Right? But here's the one that really gets me. Look at verse 6 of chapter 13. This is really interesting. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly saying, hey, let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the people who are around you, near you, or far away. Verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Okay, I'm okay with that. But look at what it goes on to say. Your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. Holy mackerel. Like, what is that in there for? Doesn't that kind of touch, touch your back a little bit? Okay, I mean, if it said, look, if this guy is, it, 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 it looks at the very closest of all relationships, doesn't it? Family and friendships. And it says, you know, if any of those people try to lead you away from God, don't pity them. Okay, all right, don't follow them. All right, I can handle that one. Um, but in their economy, at that time, they were called to actually be the one that picks up the stone and kills them. Now, is that what we're supposed to do as New Testament believers? No, 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 no. Of course not. Of course not. But when you read Luke chapter 14, and Jesus says, look, I want you to come and follow me. I want you to deny yourself. And you know what? I want, to, I want you to love me so much that at any point at which your mother or your father or your friend or your wife says something that clearly goes against what I say, you will always follow me rather than them. Always. Isn't that unbelievable? Now, Jesus is not about wanting to break up families, but there are times when, because he takes preeminence, it creates conflict in families, doesn't it? But this text calls us again and says this, the most important thing you can do in life is love God. You know, I've often thought about this. You know my best, the best way I can love my wife, Sherry? is to love God more than I love Sherry. Best thing I can do for my children is to love God more than I love them. Isn't that the truth? Because if I'm going to show them reality, I can't, I can't let the world revolve around them and what they want or, or me and what I want because I'm not helping them and loving them at the end of the day. And this text is saying, look, 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 look. If you're going to impact the next generation, it's not about being child-centered. That won't help you a lick. It won't at all help you. What it's all about is saying at the very core of my heart, I love God more than you. And when I love God more than you, I'm in a position where I can really impact you in a positive way. It's good stuff, isn't it? Think about it. If I fail here in my Christian walk, I'm guilty of hypocrisy. 
what happens if I come to church Sunday after Sunday, and every time we come in, we sit down, and my kids look real good. They smile when they're supposed to smile. They raise their hands when they're supposed to raise their hands. They sing when they're supposed to sing. And it's all a sham because they know the life I live Monday to Saturday is all about me. And if what happens if I do that week after week after week after week? What do they view as Christianity? They will view Christianity as a thing, a compartment you do on Sunday. And then you do your own thing during the week. And their tendency will be to walk away from the whole thing. And Moses says up front, look, 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 look. If we are going to impact people, it doesn't start with, with how much we know and if we're intellectually superior to it. No, 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 no. It starts right here. So at the very core of my heart, I love God supremely. Above every other person. Above every other desire. Nothing takes precedent over him. Okay. Okay, Moses. I got it. What else? Well, not only do you have to love God supremely, but you have to know his word personally. Notice what he says in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. Um, see, if you fail in the first step, you're guilty of hypocrisy. If you fail at the second step, you're in danger of teaching heresy. <laughs> because is it, it is important that if I say I love God, that I love the God of this book and not the God that I construct in my own mind. Is, is, that, is that not true? I mean, look, there's a lot of voices out there. And, and, and at the end of the day, folks, what matters more than anything else is that you read this book to know the true and living God. I mean, do we read the Bible for blessings? Of course. Challenge, encouragement, when we're just, yes, yes, all, all stuff, all, all true. But at the end of the day, this is God's love letter to us. And I've used this illustration here before, but, you know, when I was dating my wife, when I was first dating my wife and she would write me notes, I, I often tell seminary students, I learned exegesis reading love letters from my wife. You know, because I would pick up that first letter she wrote me, and if it said, Dear Doug, I wonder if she says dear to everybody. I mean, she could have just said Doug, but she said, Dear Doug. Well, how does she sign it? You know, and if she signs the note at the end, Sincerely in Christ, that may be spiritual, but it's not terribly endearing to me. I mean, I want something a little bit more passionate, don't I? I want forever yours. You know, or, or, or something, you know, something like, so man, I'm reading every line. I had a pretty good time with you today. Pretty good. What do you mean pretty good? Why don't you say like wonderful, outstanding, superb, or something, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm reading every word. What she mean by that? Why didn't she say this? She could have said that. What she mean by that? Isn't that how we read that stuff? And God gives us this, folks. He says, look, I am for you in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. This is my love letter from beginning to end. I am the creator God. Man has rebelled. I have a promise and a plan that runs through Abraham and right through the Old Testament. You find it fleshed out and fulfilled in Jesus Christ who has come, who has lived, who has died, who has resurrected, is ascended, and is coming back. And there is this full story, isn't there? And he says, look, I want you to read this book in light of that. And get to know me. 
So that when it comes to impacting the next generation and a son or a daughter or somebody in the church comes up and you say, hey, what do you think I should do about blank? You don't just have blanks in your mind. Now, look, there's a lot of tough questions in this world. And I don't care how much you study the word. There's sometimes you just say, I don't know. I got to pray about it. That, that, that's absolutely true. I fully agree with that. But, folks, we should actually be believing this stuff and reading this stuff and hearing this stuff enough that it really gets into our soul. Because God says, I've actually spoken to you. Look, whatever your political position is, you got went home. To, well, no, no, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, tell, tell you what happened. Well, no, I'll you say it like this. Suppose you went home today and you listened to your answering service and you, said, you found out that President Obama left a message for you on, 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 I mean, it was from him. It wasn't recorded. I mean, it was like, hi, whatever your name is. This is President Obama, and this is not a recording. I was wondering if you could give me some advice on what to do with some of these things. Could you, any chance you could come up and visit with me sometime this week? Look, whatever your political position is, wouldn't you find a way to get there? Man, I would just say, I, can I bring my kids? You know, I mean, you know, like, come, come more of us come along, a couple friends or whatever the case may be. I mean, I'd say to myself, well, like, he, he wants to talk to me, like, to me. And it'd be, it'd be awesome. Somebody greater has. He's given us what we need. And if I'm going to impact this next generation, I must have a love for God at the very core of my soul. Of course, of course, that's absolutely true. But it's got to be built on truth, folks. I've got to know him. And, and I, look, I don't know. Maybe you're different than me. Do I get up every morning, open up the Bible, and go, oh, God, I just can't wait to read this today. I couldn't sleep, actually, waiting to get up and read the Bible today. No, we all struggle. Sometimes you don't feel like it. I mean, it's life. But you know what? Even in those moments, I have to come back to God and say, God, just work in my heart. I'm here. Speak. I need to know you whether I feel like it or not. And God in his grace works, doesn't he, folks? In ways that we can't imagine. And he says, look, if you are going to impact the next generation, you've got to love me supremely, number one. Or else you promote hypocrisy. And, 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 and you've got to know me personally. And, and if you don't, you're in danger of teaching heresy. And thirdly, and relax, because you're saying, man, he's doing this whole chapter. I'm going to speed up, so it's okay. You know, oh, man, well, what are we going to do? It'll move quickly here. So, so, so. Thirdly, you need to talk about God persistently. Um, notice what he says here in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Not casually, diligently. It's interesting, you know. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know what he says? Because look, if you're going to be, if you're going to really impact the next generation, you got to love me for the core of your soul. You got to know me through this book. Know what I want, and then you got to talk about me. You know, of all the religions, no religion is more of a talking religion than Christianity, isn't it? I mean, we are into speaking it. Now, we shouldn't speak what we don't possess. It's all true, 
But we should speak because we're talkers at the end of the day. And I want you to talk. And he talks both here about impacting people informally and formally, in unstructured ways and in structured ways. So we might say this, I should both take opportunities and make opportunities with people in my life. So when he says here, look, do it when you rise up and when you go to bed. What's the point? The point is use teachable moments throughout the day to share Christ. I was with um, um, a cousin of mine uh, just a week or two ago. We had met down in Philadelphia and hadn't seen for a while. Brilliant, brilliant person. Doctor and just just brilliant off the charts. And um, I just, you know, you always are looking for chances to share the gospel. Like, how do I get this in? How do I do this, you know? And, and about the only thing that worked is before we ate, I said, hey, would you mind if I pray? Um, no, I, that, that, that would be nice, Doug, you know. So, you, you know, kind of do whatever. But, you know, in every situation, I'm saying, God, um, like, what do you want me to do here with this person or with my kids? You know, what, what, if, if you have younger kids, I don't, I don't know what, what it's like for you now, but I know when my kids were younger, some of our best moments to teach them were right before they went to bed. Now, I don't know if it's because they were trying to stay up later. Or whatever. But but you know what I mean? They would ask me some of the most profound questions. Okay, good night, honey. Dad, where did God come from? Well, that's a that's a really good question, you know? And you know, and, and and you use those moments. You have them with your kids. You're driving down the road and you have a teenager sitting in the car with you, and there's something on their heart that they're guilty about and they don't know what to say, and they ask you an a, a a roundabout indirect question. You know what I'm saying? Because they, they want to see how you handle that before they tell you this, ask you this. And sometimes, and when you hear that, you say, God, here's a moment you're giving me to talk about you to them and your grace. Now, I don't think it's about that third person. I think it's about them. And I'm not going to get direct on this. I'm just going to talk about you. And you take those opportunities. And, 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 but this is what he says in the text. Look, when you get up in the morning, one of the best things you can say is, God, today, grant me opportunities to show off you to the world. Please, Lord, whatever that looks like. And I don't even know, Lord. And Spirit of God, convict me at just the right moment so I'll do what you want me to do. Whatever that means, God. The harder times for me is when um, I'm under pressure. And my kids are there watching me. You know what that's like? You know, so uh, you're in a rush to get somewhere and you got a flat tire. And I don't know about you, but the word, first words out of my mouth not, normally aren't, oh, praise God. Oh, this is so good. Isn't this great, kids? You know, we live in a fallen world. It's so wonderful to experience these kinds of things. I don't know, man. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be late. How are we going to get there? But you know what? What God is saying is, Doug, here is an opportunity for you to talk me. No, I shouldn't lie. I should say, you know what, kids? I am like really frustrated right now. But God has the lesson. And I may never figure it out till glory, possibly. I don't know. But I want to respond appropriately at this point. You're driving down the road, some guy cuts in front of you. It's an opportunity, isn't it? I mean, God is there saying, what are you going to teach your children about how to handle those kinds of things? 
Now, look, I know the temptation, you know. I mean, it's the craziest thing. So one guy's in front of you. You probably lost 15 seconds, and it takes about two, three minutes of your life just focusing on that. You think about that sometimes, what we focus on. It's ridiculous. But, but what all I'm saying is this text says, look, 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 look. Love me supremely. Know me personally. Talk of me constantly. And you know what that entails? That entails taking the opportunities that I give you day by day. Sometimes they're wonderful moments. Sometimes they're pressure moments. But you take them from me. Years ago, um, I came across this. I thought it was really quite interesting. A fellow by the name of Boswell, who was the famous biographer of Samuel Johnson, um, wrote about this moment in his life that was just a turning point in his life with his father. It was the day that they went fishing. He says, you know, we went fishing and this happened and my dad said this. And he just said it was just, it was one of those most memorable moments. Well, somebody went and tried to figure out, like, what was the father's perspective on this? Because apparently the father had kept a journal also. You know what the entry was in the father's journal for that day? It was this. Gone fishing today with my son, a day wasted. That man did not realize that that was a turning significant point in that boy's life. You don't know, folks. You, you don't know. You will make statements and comments to people off the fly, and you don't think anything of it. You're just trying to share God's grace, and you go on with life, and you find out later down the road in God's good grace, that person became a Christian. Or, or that, that person was thinking, suicidal thoughts, you made some comments and God did a variety of other things in the person's life and you were strategic and you never knew and you may never find out till glory. It's just the way life works. And this text is calling us to be people of grace in the life of others. Talk of God. Take opportunities. Make opportunities. But do it. Have you found... Um, there's a whole series of temptations that keeps us from doing this process, isn't there? And one of them comes to us here in verses 10 and following. I, I want you to answer this question as I read the text. When are we most susceptible to forget God and to forget being passionate as we minister to others? When? When are we most susceptible? Look what the text says. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, uh, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God who you should fear. Him you shall serve by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, 
You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may not go in, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord has promised. Folks, according to this text, when is Doug Finkbeiner susceptible to forgetting God? In bad times or in good? It's good times, isn't it? There, 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 you know that old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's been true many, 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 many times in my life. I, 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 I have experienced God's grace and his love and have responded and tried to impact others. And there can be seasons of my life when I'm just prone to wander. And they often come in the best of times. And what I do is I experience a gift, the gift, a gift from the giver of life. And I get so caught up in the gift that I forget the giver. And my want, mind begins to wander. Rather than fearing God and taking him seriously, I just find myself drawn to other things. Well, that's kind of nice, Lord. And, and it's not like it's even vile and sinful in itself. It's just, it's just kind of a nice preoccupation. And I lose focus. And I begin to drift. Have you ever done that? I forget the giver of the gift. And get caught up in the gift. When um, when our kids were really young, when we'd have Christmas, invite over the grandparents, and we'd sit around there, and 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 I'd say, okay, honey, you can get a gift from grandma, and they would get the gift, they'd open it, oh man, wow, you know, they go off, and they're oh, just loving that gift, and go thank grandma. Oh, okay, sorry, thank you, grandma. Right back to it, right. And that is me. That is me. It gives the gift of health and relationships, kinds of blessings. And I can drift to love those things more than him. Doesn't it happen, folks? I mean, we are just so prone to wander. And Moses is saying, look, I want you to love me, know me, and talk about me. Be careful. Be careful. Because when I am my grace do good things for you, you tend to wander from me. Be very careful. Okay. When I talk to people, I should do it in unstructured and structured times. Got it, got it, got it. What should I say? The text tells us. Notice, notice how he ends here. What do I say to this next generation? Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? You ever have that like, hey, Dad, like, why all the stuff? Why can't I do that? And I can't do that. And I can't do that. And I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed, like, what's the deal with all this stuff? Right? I don't understand that. Notice what he says. Then you shall say to your son, because I said so. <laughs> Did you get that in your text? Now, it's fascinating to me what he does. It's fascinating. 
What he does is he starts with our story, doesn't he? Their story, but by way of application, the Christian story. Notice what he says. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. If you're a Jew living at this time, what was the story that you went back to again and again and again? It was this story. Why are we doing all this stuff? I'll tell you why. You go back to Egypt. You were sold into slavery and the great God came and freed you and said, I have land for you. It's for you that you might glorify me there. I love you and I'm for you. Where do we go as Christians? Do we look back at the Exodus? Well, we do. I mean, the Exodus is good stuff. But what is the event that is absolutely transforming in our lives? It's the cross, isn't it? And so we as believers, as we're walking along and we're trying to say, okay, what do I, what do I say when someone says, like, why do you Christians, like, do all this stuff? Great question. Let me tell you our story. You know, there is a great God. Who has come in the person of his son. What does it mean? And you read Philippians 2 and you read about this descent into greatness by Jesus, don't you? And he just, he just is, he's willing to submit to the Father and he's willing to live this life of a human and he's willing to go through weaknesses and struggles and temptations and experience what we experience and show forth the glory of God through the miracles and his teaching and just, and then he dies on the cross, but not anyway, he dies, he dies the worst kind of death physically at that time. I mean, when the Romans would crucify a person, they had perfected, they had perfected crucifixion. They knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted to make it look in such a way that people were saying, whatever you do in life, don't mess with Rome. So they would often hang a guy on a tree for days on that cross, on crosses. So he's just breathing and back down, breathing and back down. So it just, just everybody walked by and said, I don't think I'm going to mess with Rome. And Jesus, the one who created, who created everything, He's willing to die that kind of a death of humiliation on a cross. And even more than that, pay for this entire, pay for the sins of the world. It's unbelievable to me, isn't it? God's love. When people say God doesn't love me, you should see what happened in my life. I say, look, I'm not trying to minimize what's happened in your life. But don't ever tell me God doesn't love you. You cannot look back at the cross. And tell me God doesn't love you. You can't. That overshadows every other experience in life. Christ dies. He resurrects to show that he has power over death and hell. He ascends to heaven as my high priest. He is interceding for Doug Finkbinder there constantly. Do you know that? I mean, I got the high priest, the greatest high priest of all. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And one day he's coming back for us, folks. And when, when generations say, so like, why do you do this Christian thing? We got a story like you can't believe. 
It's the story of God. And it's what He's done in the person of His Son. And when I come to understand that, that I can be forgiven as a rebel, I actually get to come back into relationship with Him through Jesus Christ and begin to know the joy of living in obedience to Him and finding that that's what life is all about. And so He goes on to say, Therefore, you tell them the story and look at verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statues to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And he, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do this command before the Lord our God as he has commanded. You know what he's saying? The life I live now, folks, the life you live as a Christian now, No, it's not an ideal life. It's filled with all kinds of complications and problems and difficulties. Of course, I understand that. But it's the life that God's designed for us. It's the way we were meant to live. It is for our good. It is the way we are to live in this world. And he says, you know what? That's what you were meant to do. I'm not not a great mechanic or I'm not a great carpenter guy or any of those things. I can bang nails, but it gets pretty hairy after that. But I I know there's certain tools you use for one thing but not for other things. You know, I don't don't use a hammer to to, to screw in something. Like, I mean, I know that one. And, And you know what God's saying? I know who you are. I know what you were designed to be. You were designed to know me and follow me. That's it. That's it at the end of the day. And what do you tell the next generation? You tell them our story. And you talk about the fact that we get to live as he's designed us to live. That's what you tell them. And everything begins to fall together after that. Because it's all about him at the end of the day. I was reading a a book. And in it, the uh, author, I didn't check out the primary source, but I'm, I'm trusting that it's true. I know you have to be careful with that, but okay. The author refers to um, a study that was done of two different families living in New York. One fellow's name was Max Jukes, and another one, a very familiar one, if you know anything about church history, an individual by the name of Jonathan Edwards. said, Max Jukes, who lived in the state of New York, didn't believe in God, and from this, from this union he had with this woman who wasn't uh, terribly uh, promising either in the way she lived her life, Um, 1,026 descendants have been studied. 300 of them died prematurely. 100 um, went to penitentiary for an average of 13 years. 190 became public prostitutes. Um, 100 of them became drunkards. On today's economic scale, the family cost the state of New York billions of dollars. Jonathan Edwards who resided in the same state, believed in Christian training, married a woman of like mind. From this union, 729 descendants have been studied. 300 became preachers of the gospel. There were 65 college professors, 13 university presidents, 60 authors of good books, three United States congressmen, and one vice president of the United States. It is impossible to underestimate the contribution this family made to the state of New York. And also, I would say much more to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know, for you or for me, if Jesus tarries, what it's going to look like next generation. But I do know this. If we do our part by the grace of God, 
because it's ultimately his work. Don't underestimate what he can do. Don't. And he calls us through his spirit to be people that love God supremely, know his word personally, and talk of him constantly. And then you leave the rest with him and see what he's going to do. Father, we thank you for your word.